Future Proof Extra from News Talk. Now, cities are designed by people and they're for people, but many animals join us in our urban habitats too. And so inevitably, these environments affect those species, how they live, how they eat, how they breed. So knowing what we know about evolution, what sort of changes will our man-made environments force upon the animals of the world? Well, Dr. Rob Dunn is a professor of applied ecology at North Carolina State University, and he's author of a new book called A Natural History of the Future, What the Laws of Biology Tell Us About the Destiny of the Human Species. Uh, he joins me now. Uh, welcome to the program, Rob. I suppose we know that we are wiping out species at an alarming rate, but, but I suppose the point of this book is that at the same time, nature itself is very adaptable at times. That's right. And, and, and we actually know a lot about which species we're wiping out and also which species we're favoring. And, and so there are a bunch of rules of ecology that help us think about that sorting the wheat from the chaff, whether what we're sorting out is what we want or not. And so one of the simplest ones is just this, what's something called the species area rule. And the species area rule is just the idea that the more area there is of some particular habitat, the more species you will have uh, in that habitat. And so this actually allows us to think about the kinds of species that we're favoring. And so we know that many of the wild habitats that we love, forests and grasslands and swamps, are becoming smaller and smaller. And so those are places where we're seeing extinctions of species. Conversely, the habitats we're making bigger and bigger are our farms and our cities. And so that's actually where we're seeing the evolution of new species. And so this dynamic is happening all around us, but we don't tend to pay very much attention to it. And so the book is really about what what is our current understanding allow us to predict about the future of places like cities, like farms, like even what we might foresee if we colonized Mars or uh, interstellar habitations. And so it's just using the rules to make sense of what's going on around us. Yeah, there's a lot of rules in this book. I, I, I didn't expect to find them, but they're, they're really interesting. They're sort of um, uh, semi-official natural laws to do with diversity and to do with um, uh, population growth versus other factors um, in ecology. And, and, and that's one of the reasons I really enjoyed it, because I, uh, th- a lot of them make sense. Like this idea that large spaces um, would have a more diversity makes sense. Do we, do we know why that is? It may sound like an obvious thing, but do we know why more spaces means more diversity? Well, so, so it's a bunch of reasons. This is the, the often we know uh, that the rule works and why the rule works is the sort of thing that ecologists argue about over beers for hours and hours. Right. Um, but so the more area you have, the more resources you have. Uh, the more kinds of habitat you have, and then also the higher the probability that something will arrive there, some new species that gets to take advantage of that set of resources. And so we even see this with COVID. The the probability that COVID will arrive in a particular place is partially a function of how many people live in that place. And so there it's not area per se, but the number of people, but it's the same kind of phenomena. And so a whole bunch of different independent uh, processes underlie uh, that rule. But on average, it tends to hold. It's held over millions of years. It will hold for millions of years. Uh, speaking about laws, what is the law of niches and how does it affect um, evolution of species in new environments? Well, so This is really one of the oldest laws in ecology, regularities, laws, rules, whatever you want to call it. And it's just the idea that each species has a set of circumstances of climate, of 
of food uh, that are necessary necessary for it to thrive. And so that's the simplest kind of idea that you can imagine. Uh, and people have been talking about this long since long before the advent of ecology. But as we think about the future, it actually turns out to be very relevant to what's going to happen around us. Because as we change the conditions uh, on Earth, we're changing which species are going to be able to survive. And if we know the niches of species, we have a pretty good chance of predicting whether they're going to be among those that go with us into the future for as long as we're around, or those that are going to fall in, into the past. And, and, and so, in, in a way, it's a very simple idea. But, but if you look outside into the landscape around you, you can sort of extrapolate from this idea. And so if you think about your surrounding environment and you think about the future climate that's going to be there in 2050 or 2100 with climate change, well, if we know which species have the niches associated with that future climate, we can predict which species are going to live around you. And so it's actually a quite powerful uh, little rule. The other part of this rule that's interesting is that we too, we humans also have a niche. And so we have a set of circumstances in which our societies thrive, and we also have circumstances in which they don't. And so we can also predict, you know, where we are going to struggle as humans as climates change and other aspects of the future change. And so it's, it's a quite powerful sort of rule of thumb for making sense of where we're going. Can you give me an example of that within an urban environment when it comes to species? Yeah, for, for sure. So if we think about Florida, which is sort of subtropical already, as Florida's climate warms, it's going to have climate that's more like central Mexico. And as that becomes true, all of the species with niches uh, associated with the climate of central Mexico are going to find the tip of Florida to be a suitable habitat. And so those are the species we predict are going to move there in the near future. By the same token, all of the crops from those regions are going to be uh, farmable in Florida in the future. But then the, the dark side of this is it's also true that the pests and pathogens of those crops are going to find Florida suitable in the future and the pests and pathogens of humans. And so the niches of many tropical mosquitoes suddenly match up with future Florida. And so we can predict some good things that'll move toward us, but we can also predict some of the dangers. And that becomes important because if we know where those dangers are coming, we can do things like build up our public health systems to be ready for new pathogens. Build <laughs> up our agriculture. Yeah, right. <laughs> the idealism of that notion is uh, it's, it's actually rather sweet. Yeah, well, thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I, I mean, like well, I mean in, that, in an alternative yeah. reality, we would be able to look twenty years in advance, say our temperature is going to change, our other, let's let's boost up our infectious disease capability uh, and so on, like theoretically. But I mean, the last few years has shown that we um, we don't do well with thinking even six months ahead. That's right. And, and that's that's a big point of the book and a sort of challenge to our status quo, which is that we seem very happy um, collectively to have lots of money spent on sending uber rich people into space and giant phallic rocket ships with the idea that that's building towards some particular future. And we don't invest in the future that actually makes sense of the living world around us and and tries to work with it to create livable situations for people all, all around the earth. And, and it's hard and it's often boring, right? Like the, 
public health spending is the most boring spending you can possibly do because if it works great, you never hear about it again. Yeah. And yet we, we, I mean, as we've seen, we have to be thinking about these things. And the real issue too, is that a lot of these kinds of expenditures, you need to do them 20 years ahead of time. Yeah. You, know, it's, you can't do it and when COVID in, shows up. In most countries, that is five governments of different colors. So yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Um, but getting back to um, to the adaptability of species, you talk about these two laws of diversity. Um, and I was really interested in, in uh, the law of cognitive buffering. This is to do with smart animals and how if the terrain is variable or if the the it's a sort of an unpredictable world that intelligence rises amongst the animals in a way. Yeah, that's right. So there's been uh, a, a debate for years and years about wh why do animals sometimes involve, evolve uh, great intelligence. And we, so we see it in crows, we see it in, you know, their relatives, blue jays, we see it in parrots, see it in some primates. And so why does this happen? And so what's emerged is that one of the factors that's really important is variable environments. And so an environment that's not predictable year to year or even season to season. And th in those environments, one of the only ways that animals seem to be able to get by is by using big brains to kind of plan ahead and store food, but also to take advantage of whatever's available. And so on a biological level, this is just super interesting. It's, you know, well, this is part of what has led the world to be the way it is. For thinking about those species, it's also interesting because the, con the conditions we create around ourselves are often very variable. So urban environments for birds are very patchy and hard to deal with. And what do we see in cities? It's often these smart, smart birds. But it's also, I think, really interesting for us that we're going to confront these very variable conditions. And so how do we deal with them? What, what would it mean to, to be like a crow in confronting our own future? Right. And, and so the, the reverse of that means what exactly? So if environments sort of stabilize and become very predictable, what, what happens then? Yeah. So if, it's, if everything's always predictable, species become very specialized. So they do their one good thing extraordinarily well. Right. And they, re they rely on predictable conditions and, and sort of and like so narrow AI in a way. Yeah, exactly. And it's, but it's also like businesses and institutions that have a lot of inertia. And when you go to meetings in those institutions, people say things like, well, we've always done it this way. And that's the specialization that works when nothing changes. But when the world's changing, that no longer works. Hmm. How much um, pressure are we putting on the species of the earth? Like when it comes to the, the, the global planet, how much of it is covered by ecosystems or environments that humans have significantly altered or created themselves? I mean, it depends how you do the accounting, but it's it's far more than half. And by, wow. by some accounting, it's more like 70% that we're the dominant selective pressure. What? Are you talking about land or are you talking about the whole planet? Land. I mean, okay, the yeah. measuring our effects on the ocean is, is more messy. You know, they're sort of everywhere and washing around. But on, on land, we're, we're everywhere. And that includes things where we're just transforming the landscape. So, so our farm fields cover an extraordinary percentage of terrestrial earth, our pasture lands. But it also includes the chemicals we release into the environment that kill some species and, and in doing so favor others. And so the as you walk around outside, it's a giant evolutionary experiment where we have our thumb on nature. And uh, without paying much attention, 
the experiment, what we're doing is to figure out, well, which of these lineages evolved to move around our thumb, to move mm. around these pressures we're exerting. And so we're now, you know, in 15 years ago, people were, were sort of of the belief that, well, evolution's slow. We won't see the reaction of nature to this in real time. And, and now it's clear that evolution is not so slow, that we're seeing evolutionary responses of species all around us to, to <laughs> the weight of our existence. So are we seeing new species evolve? I mean, I know the definition of a species depends um, quite a bit on, on, on what you're looking at, but are, are we seeing these urban environments or these changed landscapes pop up new species as a result of this change? We are. And, and I mean, what, what scientists would be most comfortable with is saying new lineages, you know, which is one of these cheeky words we get to use so we don't have to say what a species is. But, <laughs> but we're seeing new lineages with new attributes. And we see it, for example, with, with rats in North America. Uh, Jason Munchy South has done amazing work showing that populations of rats in different cities in North America are diverging from each other. And it, it looks as though they may have different traits as a different sort of physical features as a function of where their cities are, what their climates are. In New England, the pigeons in New York are diverging from the pigeons in northern New England. Within cities, we're seeing rapid evolution in response to pesticides and herbicides. And so German cockroaches, uh, which which are not German, we shouldn't blame the Germans, but the, the German cockroaches only live indoors. We don't know where they're native. We don't know where they... So they, they had this evolutionary transition inside, but we used to bait them. We had these little baits that you can buy at the store today, and they're baited with sugar. And it was noticed that some of the roaches stopped going to the baits. And what had happened is that the natural selection on the roaches was so strong that they evolved new sensory receptors that told them that the sugar in the baits was bitter. And so they avoided it. And so this evolution is <laughs> happening all around us. And we, we just don't pay that much attention to it. What about um, the, the, the parts of our universe, um, planet or, or um, solar system that are very inhospitable? I mean, we say nature finds a way, but... Uh, if we think of places like, for example, nuclear sites or the London Underground, um, inhospitable places, um, are we are we seeing new types of species and new adaptations even in in these what what you'd think is you know deadlands? Yeah. So, so for a long time, ecologists ignored those deadlands because they're terrible to go study. You know, you can go work in a rainforest or you can go work in the underground and everybody chooses the rainforest. But in the last decade, we've started to study some of those places and it's clear we're seeing rapid evolutionary changes in those places with species evolving to take advantage of those extreme conditions. And so there are species evolving to take advantage of antimicrobial wipes. So there's a bacteria species that lives on the uh, drippy tips of those dispensers that you see all over the place. Ugh. And, and loves them. There's an underground mosquito, a mosquito that lives in the London underground and other subway systems that in moving into those habitats has evolved to be able to withstand those conditions and to feed on mammals rather than birds, which is what it, its ancestors fed on above ground. On oil spills, we're seeing really unique microbes evolving to take advantage of oil spills. And, and so we, we talk a lot about the end of nature and this idea that nature is threatened. And the truth is, what's threatened is the kind of nature that is per permissive to us, that um, 
the, the nature, nature we as we like. as we see on TV, not yeah, nature, nature, nature will still TV. hang around. Yeah. Yeah. And, and nature that we like, I mean, we're, it's a very damning, uh, reality of our species that, that we seem to be really good at getting rid of species that we like and really good at favoring species we don't like. And that's what mm. we're doing all around us. That's great. That's, um, that's a really great news story. <laughs> Thanks. Basically we're getting rid of all the, we're getting rid of all the nice stuff and all the stuff that we really don't like we're we're allowing to thrive. I mean, when we look at the overall picture, Rob, I mean, we have 65% of animals um, are domesticated. Um, we've got you know, 30% odd humans, and then 3% make up the vertebrate biomass. So everything else. Do, do we see that changing o over time? Have we seen a change in the last 30 years? To the extent that there's been a change in the last 30 years, um, we continue to take advantage of more and more of the earth as our populations grow. In the long run, eventually we'll go extinct. All species do. And at that point, that balance will tip, tip radically and we'll, we'll, see, we'll see a very different earth. But in the short term, we continue to, to gather more and more of what's, what's here on earth uh, for ourselves. Uh, well, always cheery speaking with you. <laughs> Rob, <laughs> Rob Dunn's book is called uh, A Natural History of the Future. Rob, thanks for your time. Oh, my pleasure, Jonathan. Jonathan.